Welcome, everybody, to He's Not Done Yet. We're so delighted that you're here today, tuned in, and we're just so excited to have you. And uh, just wanted to let you know that He's Not Done Yet airs on the radio station, Victory Radio, here in North Little, Little Rock, Arkansas, every Sunday from 10 to 11. It's also on Spotify, YouTube, and um, Google Podcast and all the different uh, uh, medias out there, and we'd love for you to tune in. And uh, we also have uh, church on Sunday morning at the First Pentecostal Church at 1030, uh, Sunday night at 7, and then Tuesday night at 7 p.m. We'd love for you to come. Feel free to reach out to me. You can reach me on my cell phone at 501-339-8017. Also, you can go to our website, he's not done yet.com. He's not done yet.com. Thank you again for being here. Uh, today's scripture comes from Psalms 27 and 4. One thing have I desire of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you today, God. I thank you, Lord. We pray today that it would fall on good ground. God, we honor you, Lord. We know, oh, we know that you're here, Lord, and we thank you for it, Lord. Oh, in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, today we have a very special guest, and uh, this is one of my heroes, one of my my friends. Uh, He's calling in right now. And, uh, but no, we have, uh, a very good friend of mine and, uh, he's a minister, a man of God. Um, and, uh, we're so glad he's here. It's brother, brother Jacob McMorris. And we are so honored you're here today, brother. We want you to come in and obey the Holy Ghost, brother. When things go wrong, as they sometimes will. When the road you're trudging seems all uphill. When the money's low and the debts are high. And you want to smile, but you have to sigh. When care is pressing you down a bit. Rest if you must, but don't ever quit. Life is queer with its twists and its turns, as every one of us sometimes learns. And many a fellow turns about when he might have won had he stuck it out. Don't give up, though the pace seems slow. You just might succeed with another blow. Often the goal is nearer than it seems to the faint and faltering man. Often the struggler's given up when he might have captured the victor's cup. And he learned too late when the night came down how close he was to his golden crown. Success is failure turned inside out, silver tint in the clouds of doubt. And when you never know and can tell how close you are, it may be near when it seems so far. So stick to your fight when your heart is hit. It's when things go wrong that you must never, ever quit. Brother McDougall, I'm honored to be here today. And you're one of my heroes. I've been told all my life, the true worshipers are the first ones down front. 
And I'm happy to say, whenever I see you, I know I'm late. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to tell you my story today, and it's a mind-blowing story. (laughs) So in 1993, my mother and father are standing in a revival with Fred Barfield, incredible man of God, built a church out of finding people homeless in Atlanta, Georgia, and telling them, if you let me preach to you, I'll feed you a meal. He'd load them up in his bus, bring them to his church, feed them all a meal, then he'd preach to them. He's got pastors out of that church, business owners out of that church, people he found eating in trash cans. He's preaching a revival down in Louisiana at my mother and father's church. He calls them up front, says, come up here, let me pray for you. He leans in, tells my mother, oh, I see a man in your womb. She leans in, says, Brother Barfield, I'm sorry, but I'm not pregnant. He said, oh, sister, you are. You better go check again because I see a man of God, and his name's going to be Jacob. So my mother found out that she, in fact, was pregnant, and she told my father, well, I guess we know what his name's going to be. So the day I'm born, I had a massive heart murmur. I was a severe diabetic. Doctors came in, said, we give him about three years to live at the most. Three days, I'm sorry, three days to live at the most. My mother calls her pastor and says, you got to get up here. He said, well, Brother Barfield's in town. Me and him was just sitting down to eat. We'll come up there and see you. Brother Barfield and my pastor walked in and said, where's the boy? Come in, prayed for me, said, go check the boy again. Doctors come out and say, well, we must have made a mistake on our numbers He said, you didn't make a mistake, but the devil ain't going to steal what God's setting up here. Five years later, my little sister's born in September, September 14th, 1999. She's born. My parents get out of the hospital. They bring her to dedicate her back to God. I remember their dedication service. I'm standing there, and... They dedicated my little sister, and it was at that service was the last service they ever came to. They backslid, and later that week, the pastor there that we grew up under, he called my mom up said, hey, come to my office. I need to talk to you. She came up there being obedient. He said, sis... I can't make you live for God, but you do one thing. You make sure that that boy never misses a service. You make sure that no matter what, that that boy knows the truth. She said, I promise you I will. A week later, I get dropped off at the church. I'm there without my parents. I can take you to the place, the front pew, left side, right by where Sister Stone, pastor's wife, would always sit. It's after a Holy Ghost service. I'm down there on my knees. She's to my right, and her daughter's to my left. I'm five years old. I begin crying. Her daughter says, Mama, something's wrong with him. 
She says, no, baby, nothing's wrong with him. You keep crying out, son. God's going to fill you with the Holy Ghost. And right there at five years old, God filled me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. It was later during that month, I went to my father and I said, I want to get baptized. pastor said he'll baptize me if you say it's fine. You don't have to be there. I just need to get baptized so that I can get to heaven. I've got the Holy Ghost already. He said, absolutely, get baptized. And so I did. So things took a worse turn for my family. My mother became addicted to hard drugs. My father, drugs, prescription pills, and different things. You know how the world turns. They separated, and for the next few years, we lived a rough life. Now, I want to be clear. I had good parents. I had a good mom. I wasn't never hungry, you know. But we lived in shelters. We lived under bridges. We lived in cars. You name it. We were there. Sometimes we'd have a house for a little while. We were like gypsies, brother. It wouldn't be long. We'd be moving again. But Every time it came time for church, I was on my way. If we didn't have a ride, I'd call somebody to come get me. If we didn't have a phone to call somebody to come get me, I could take you back to me being 10 years old, putting that suit and tie on, and starting my walk through town, 12 miles to the church. You know, if you're a 10-year-old boy with a suit on, somebody's going to stop and say, hey, you need a ride? And my mother, she trained us to be weary of people. And so if the right person stopped, young mom with her children, and yes, ma'am, I do. I'm just going to church right up the road. Would you bring me? Yeah, I'll bring you. And I'd do that for years. I'd get dropped off. I'd walk, whatever it took. But I always had a tenacity of I'm going to be at church every time we have church. You ought to never miss church. Thomas missed one church service, and 2,000 years later, we still call him Doubting Thomas. You ought to be at church every time the doors are open. And so going through that phase, when I was about 15, 16, I had lived a life where Egypt was raising me. By the time I was a teenager, I knew things about the world that grown people don't know. Things, terrible things that children didn't need to know. But while Egypt was raising me, Israel was nursing me. I knew what the local drug dealers were up to. I knew what everybody was going to prison for. I knew what it was when a probation officer came around and to tell them, no, he's not here. We hadn't seen him. He's at work. But at the same time, Israel was nursing me, and I knew there wasn't but one God, and his name was Jesus. I knew there wasn't no other way to live, but according to the Bible way. I knew that without holiness, no man was going to enter in, nor see him. But at 15, 16 years old, I started getting into some trouble, of course. And I ended up being arrested 19 years old, wrong place, wrong time, hanging out with the wrong friends, 
I get arrested during that time. I'm spending in jail. My father died. And my father was an older gentleman. He was born in 1946. But he had lived a hard life of, you know, drugs, alcohol, and everything. A preacher showed up to his door on a Wednesday morning and said, Brother Jerry, Lord put you on my heart, been on my mind. Won't you come to church tonight? My daddy said, oh, Brother Stone, you're right, because I just said this Sunday I'm coming to church. I'm going to get back full of the Holy Ghost. I'm going to quit these drugs. I'm even going to quit smoking cigarettes. And I'm going to do it right, and I'm going to live right. This Sunday, it's coming. And that preacher said, Brother Jerry, we've got service tonight. Please don't wait. Come tonight. And he said, no, I can't come tonight. I got some things going on. But I'll be there Sunday. He laid down and died that night. Mm. Now, I'm not one to put anybody in heaven nor put anybody in hell. He's in the hands of a just God. But I'd hate to spend eternity knowing I waited one more night. Mm. Why would you wait? Why wouldn't you come now? Right. Why wouldn't you come today? Today. And so I ended up dealing with some time in prison. But when I come out of there, the church that I had been born and raised into it had had some issues. It had had some problems. Things had kind of fell apart, you know. And so I just had it on my mind. Well, I've got to find a church. And I found me a church. And in that church, there was about eight people, including myself. And the pastor and I had went to a preacher's meeting one night. And another pastor come over, and he said, Brother... If this young man will fast three days a week, God's going to send revival to your church. Well, I had the biggest, finest piece of strawberry cheesecake you ever seen in your life sitting in front of me, and I said, Brother, you picked a fine time to come talk about fasting. <laughs> and he said, Brother, he don't want to hear it. He thinks I'm joking, but I'm telling you, if he'll fast three days a week, God's going to send revival to your church. So we took it serious. And we started fasting three days a week. Well, in four weeks, we went from eight to 40. Started teaching Bible studies, and then trouble came. My life's no stranger to trouble. And one thing I know about a man, he's full of trouble. And he had brought in a pastor just trying to be a good friend to him. He had been a part of a Trinitarian organization and he had retired and his church really stopped having anything to do with him. He was trying to be a good friend and wrap his arms around him. But there was contention there for obvious reasons and God dealt with me and I said, well, I'm going to figure out where I need to go. And so I started looking and searching, and there was a church in Baton Rouge that I never even knew existed, but they were having a large conference, 
And I seen some of the names that I was familiar with that were going to be preaching. And one of the names was Fred Barfield. Same man who had given me a name and prophecy and it prayed over me when I was born. I thought, man, how wonderful would it be to see Brother Barfield? And so I went to that conference and after the service, I went and shook his hand and I said, Brother Barfield, you probably don't remember me, but I'm from Ponchatoula, Brother Stone's church. He said, oh, I remember a little red-headed boy rolling in the floors. I said, well, you do remember me. <laughs> he used to have a saying too, the devil is a puke-faced liar. <laughs> and so... I shook his hand, spoke with him a little bit, and then went about my way. Went and sat down to eat. They were feeding everybody after the service, but I didn't know anybody. Was sitting off by myself. Got up, turned around to leave, and there was Brother Barfield. And he said, son, you sit down and tell me what's going on. I said, okay, Lord. So I sat down. I had told him about the circumstances and issues and problems that were happening. He said, how far away are you? I said, 45 minutes from here. He said, son, they walked four days to hear Jesus speak. Surely you could drive 45 minutes, go to a good church. I said, yeah, surely I could. He said, this is where you need to be, right here. And I took it. Got in touch with the pastor, talked to him. He said, yeah, I feel good about it. I want to get you here, get you plugged in with the ministry. Let's get working. So spent a few years there. God blessed us with a thriving bus ministry. And at one point, 80 to 90 people every Sunday morning on my bus. 50, 60 Bible studies a week. Incredible numbers. Then even during the pandemic, we were one of the churches that were, of course, still having church, and everybody knew about it. Walked into my job one day, and they said, if you're going to keep going to that church, we're going to have to fire you. I said, well, I can't stop, because if you want the man you see walking into this job every day with the character and integrity that I have, then I'm going to have to keep going to church. It keeps me this way. And they let me go, and but God blessed me. Went to selling fruit on side the road. Did $250,000 in fruit sales in six months. <laughs> Most money I'd ever made in my life. And so fast forward a little bit. And in 2021, another pastor reached out to us interested in me coming and helping him to start a bus ministry in his church. They had been working on it, and he had knew of the success, but he just wanted some help. And so through a lot of prayer and fasting and counsel of pastors, we went ahead and made the move, made the decision to go. So went down there, and then you know me, trouble struck. I'm no stranger to trouble. And my life had been ripped out from underneath me. And you want to talk about offended 
when people say I'm offended, try me. <laughs> I'm hurt, try me. My life had been ripped out from underneath me. Everything that I had had been taken from me. And all that was left was nothing. But I had hope because you can go 21 days without food. You can go 48 hours without water. You can go three minutes without oxygen, but you can't go one second without hope. And so I was on a self-destructive path that surely there was nothing left for me. Surely I could never be nothing ever again. Surely I could never have anything ever again. Surely even ministry was beyond my reach. And when you've got a calling on your life and you feel like there's never hope of you fulfilling that calling, what is there else? What else is there? And so believing the lies of the enemy is what it was. Believing the lie that, oh, there's nothing left, there's no hope, there's nowhere to go from here. I was on a self-destructive path. And so on a cold winter night, November the 30th, 2021, I'm riding across town. I had been back in my hometown of Louisiana, back in Ponchatoula, and I'm riding across town with a friend. He pulls into an apartment complex. He gets out of the car. I know a bunch of the men that are there in that same apartment complex. I get out of the car. Whenever I do, all of a sudden a car rounds the corner. Two men jump out. They commence to argue with two men across from us. Before you know it, the argument turns up into an exchange of gunfire, which leaves me struck through the right temple and out of the left temple with a nine millimeter full metal jacket bullet. Now the story is, according to the witnesses, that I fall and hit the ground and then all of a sudden I stand up and begin screaming at the top of my lungs to which point all four men throw their guns down and take off running. The detective says the only reason that I halfway believe that story is because I've never worked a shooting scene where I found all four of the weapons unless everybody was deceased. So I fall back out, and a young lady up at the top of the apartment building, you see, this apartment complex was a part of my bus route back in the day. And she said, oh, man, no, they've killed the bus driver. She runs downstairs, and she puts me up against her and puts a towel on the other side of my head, forming compression to stop the bleeding, at which point she says, I look up at her and say, thank you, but I need to get out of here. And she says, you can't go nowhere. You've got a hole in your head. And so ambulance comes, picks me up, brings me to the hospital. They rush me inside. They get me on life support. They call my mother. My mother, who's been backslid now for 23 years. And they say, ma'am, 
your son's been shot in the face. He's dead. Thank God for a mama who even in her backslidden ignorance had rock-solid faith. You know, consecration will get you in heaven. Consecration will get you plugged in. But faith will get your prayers answered. Faith will make Jesus marvel. And my mother, when she received that call and they said, he's been shot in the face, he's dead, she responded with, the devil is a liar. My son's got to work for God to do. Don't ever call this phone again. Click, hung up. Called my sister, said, go find your brother. He's hurt. My sister finds me at the hospital. My mother makes her way up there. She walks in. This is about day three. I'm hooked up to life support machines in every way. They sit her down. Lady walks in. She says, ma'am, you want to consider really whether or not you want to let your son live like this. You know, these machines keeping him alive. You want to consider if you should pull the plug, see what happens. My mother said, you should have killed him when you had the chance, devil. Now get out of my face and don't ever come back. She'd later tell me when I woke up, son, I never saw that lady again. I said, that was the devil. He was trying to get me for round two. And so my skull had collapsed on both sides. It had fractured, set down. The head and the brain began to swell. All the arteries coming out of my brain had shut off. They wasn't releasing any blood. The entire left side of my body was dead. And after two weeks of being in a propofol medical-induced coma, the doctors walked in, making their rounds, and they said, Ma'am, your son's a strong individual. He refuses to die. But at this point, if he survives, he'll be a vegetable. He'll be blind and paralyzed for the rest of his life. He'll never walk again, and he'll never see. My mother stood up and said, Anybody who thinks God isn't going to heal my son today, get out. And out of respect for my mother, the doctors began walking out the door. And as the last one exited the door, and I heard that hospital door slam shut, my eyes shot open. She walked up. She grabbed me by the arm, and she said, Son, you're hurt, and it's bad. But you will walk out of here in that name. What is that name, son? Now, one thing about my mama. She might have been backslid. She might have been messed up, but she didn't play about God. She didn't play about the things of God, and she didn't talk about godly things unless she meant business. And she said, what is that name, son? And as I began to try and speak, I had a tracheotomy in my throat with a ventilator hooked up to it, and it was a struggle. And as I'm struggling, (laughs) she said, yeah, it's hard, but you say it. See, she didn't play. She didn't cut no slack. And I belched it out, 
Jesus. She said, now get out of that bed. And I threw the covers, and I grabbed that ventilator tube, and I popped it off of that tray, and I sat up, and I stood up out of that bed. And when I did, an alarm that was on the bed in case I was to fall started going crazy. That same team of surgeons that had just told my mama I'd never walk again come running in the room. And when they did, brother, they about fell over each other. One of them, she was a Hindu lady from India. In Hinduism, they have over two million gods. They're taught to learn the names of them from the time they're a child. And she would come in from time to time and try to console my mother and say, hey, I understand, you know, I have a little girl. She's nine years old. She's dying of cancer. And so I understand your pain. And my mother would say, well, I'm sorry, but my son's not dying. My son's going to walk out of here in Jesus' name. You just wait and see. And so when they came in there and they about fell over each other, finally, that one standing up front, he said, how are you doing this? And I said, ah. and realizing I still had trouble with that trach trying to speak, I shook my head and I said, Jesus. That same Indian doctor that same Hindu lady, she fell to the ground squalling. She pointed her finger at me and said, this is what the true God looks like. I need this Jesus to visit my little girl. And so the doctor said, six months of physical therapy, a year of neuro rehab, we'll send you to blind school because my vision was so bad when I woke up, I couldn't see you sitting right here in front of me. The optic nerve had been almost completely severed. They said, but we'll do this, and we'll get you back operating normally. We'll get you back functioning, and you'll get to where you can eat solid foods, and, and you know, we'll get you there. The next day, they walked in, and I had a big box of Popeyes. The doctor said, are you eating Popeyes? And I said, yes, but it's okay. It's tenders, <laughs> so it's tender. And he said, well, surely, man, you shouldn't be eating Popeyes already. So two weeks later, exactly 30 days after I had been shot through the head with a 9 millimeter, the doctor walked in. He said, lay back, son. He pulled the trach out of my throat, put a piece of gauze on me. They clipped the stomach tube. He said, son, it's obvious to all of us that God, is doing a far better job than anything that we're capable of doing here. And we're not going to attempt to get in the way or slow him down. And so we're going to release you today. You can go home. They put me in the wheelchair, rolled me down to the front door, and I said, you could stop right here. Put the brakes on the wheelchair and said, I'm going to get up and walk out of here, just like Mama said I would. And 30 days exactly to the day, December 30th, 2021, I walked out the front door of that hospital. Amen. I walked into the eye doctor. They said, well, you see us? I said, well, yes. 
They said, wow, you really are a miracle. I said, I see you, but my eyesight's damaged. And they said, well, we can do a surgery, but the bar for legally blind, you'll be just beneath it. You'll forever be legally blind, but we could help you a little bit. We could get you there a little better. I said, okay. I said, well, do y'all know my story and, and what all's happened? They said, everybody in this hospital knows about you. I said, so you understand I may walk in here one day and everything be just fine. That doctor said, not only do we understand that, but we wouldn't be surprised a bit if you walked in here tomorrow and those eyes were perfectly fine after all that God's done for you. And so I get my phone back from the detectives and I've got two missed calls, not one, two missed calls from who's now my wife. Now my wife and I had known each other since we were little kids she lived in Georgia. I lived in Louisiana, but our pastors were best friends. We went to all the same youth camps. But, you know, when I'd see her at youth camp, you know, I remember the one. It was, hey, girl, you want to let me get your phone number? Yeah. And all of her friends were around, and it was, oh, no, oh, no, uh -uh, I don't even have a phone. And then I said, yeah, I know what it is. You don't want the phone number of the guy rolling around in the floor in his white suit. You want the phone number of the guy who's hanging out and not showing up to prayer meeting. She said, no, 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 I don't have a phone. And so a little later that night in youth camp, all of her friends were gone. She said, hey, here's that number. <laughs> and so we had known each other since we were kids, but we grew up and we had lives and went separate ways. Hadn't made contact in a long time. And so when I seen that I had two missed calls from her, I said, oh, well, hmm, what's she doing calling me? Uh, hello? She said, hey, why didn't you answer my calls? I said, oh, well, I was dead. Some fool tried to kill me. She said, boy, men will lie about whatever. I said, no, I'm serious. Go see. Go check it out. And surely my family had posted stuff on social media, and she called me back. She said, I am so sorry. Are you okay? I said, no, I'm not. As a matter of fact, I need, you know, I need us to go out on a date or something. <laughs> surely I could get a date out of this. And so I come out of the hospital my healing started progressing rapidly, started getting better at a rapid pace. And me and my wife now had started talking, and I said, you know, because she was ready to uproot, move down there to Louisiana, but she had two little girls here in Arkansas, and she was raising her nephew, who's our son. And... I said, you know what? I remember when I was eight years old, and the only prayer I remember having was, God, why can't my mom and dad be here? Yeah. Why can't my parents be here? God, please, 
let my parents come here. And so I'm talking to my wife, and I said, surely we can figure something out. But my mother had said, son, I'm going to come to church with you. Now, my mama didn't play about church, but I can imagine all the promises that a mother makes to God looking at her son on his deathbed. And so she did. She moved in with me. She said, yeah, this would be a good place. It was a Sunday morning. She had been there with me for a few weeks, a couple weeks. It was a Sunday morning, and she said, Son, don't worry about us going out to eat after church. I cooked chicken and dumplings. And I said, you cooked what? Because it had been a long time since me and Mama were at home and she had cooked chicken and dumplings. And I said, well, hallelujah. And we got to church that Sunday morning, and she came and found me. And she grabbed a hold of me and said, Hey, son, would you dance with me? And I must have pulled out the biggest handkerchief you ever seen in your life and said, Oh, you don't know who you talking to, mama. I'm the dancingest man in here. Now, in my mama's life, I baptized her once in an outdoor Easter service. I'd seen her pray through. I had prayed her through once. But that day I got something that I never had in my life. When my mama came, got me and said, would you dance with me? And brother, we ran up front and we danced and we shouted and we pitched a Holy Ghost fit and we talked in tongues and we had us a party. And when we got back to the house, I'm sitting across the table from her and it's the best my mom had ever looked in her life that I could remember. And she had a beautiful bouquet of flowers on the table that someone from the church had gotten her. And I'm sitting there looking at her, and I said, Mama, it was worth every night in that hospital. It was worth every inch of that bullet. It was worth every worry, every fear to see you here. She said, Son... I've never played with God, and I'm not playing with God now. I'm here because I mean business. And two days later, she died. Well, you say that's sad. Well, is it sad or is it mercy that God will go to the extent and the lengths he will to get a hold of us just in time. Thank you, Jesus. I had told my friend, great friend to me, Brother Jackson, I said, hey, I just preached my brother's funeral and my brother-in-law. Don't make me preach my mama's. Would you, would you handle that for me? And I'll just, he said, absolutely, I would. I'd be honored to. And at my mama's funeral, she was the kind of person that left an impact on everybody. At my mother's funeral, there were preachers. 
and there were drug dealers. There were pastors, and there were drug abusers. There were police officers. There was Pentecostals, and there was people on parole, and there was parole officers looking for them. (laughs) But she affected every kind of person that there was. And during that funeral service, again, I don't put anybody in heaven or hell, but the Holy Ghost showed up, visited with us. I mean, you could have got the Holy Ghost in that funeral service. And it was incredible. And I said, well, thank you, Jesus, for showing up with me here at my mama's funeral. He uses the foolish things to confound the wise. And so I end up telling my wife, hey, you know, I remember when I was eight years old and I would pray about having my parents in church and having both my parents close by. And surely I can imagine that your girls want their daddy and their mama both to be close by them, with them. I can imagine they've prayed that. I said, so you know what? I think I'll just come to Little Rock. I said, and I'll talk with Pastor and see what he thinks about it and get his blessing, and we'll make it happen. And so went, met with him first Sunday up here, and he said, so what's going on? And I said, well, we're wanting to get married. And he said, well, great, when? I said, well, the courthouse opens up in about 12 hours, so somewhere around that time. And he said, well, wonderful. Well, where are y'all wanting to go to church? And I said, what a crazy question. We're wanting to go right here. And he said, well, hallelujah. And he said something to me that I wouldn't understand until later the weight of it, but he said, well, let's do it. Get in here. Let's get by this church and pray together every day and watch God restore more than you ever thought possible. And so my wife had actually been on a 52-day fast about God giving her the right direction for a husband, but not just a husband, someone to fulfill her life and the role for her family and lead them closer to God. But she got stuck with me, so (laughs) no. But so we signed our marriage license on day 51. And I said, you know what? We should start our marriage on a 52-day fast. But not just a fast, but 52 days of us committing to get by this church and pray. You know, because God had done so much already. Who's to tell what he's going to do, but he had done so much already. You see, the past affects the future, and the present affects the future. And the past affects the present. But the future doesn't affect the past. And the present doesn't affect the past. 
unless you're writing a book and you know the ending. And when God writes the book of your life and he knows the ending, there's things he's done in the past for you because he knew what you were going to do with it today. And he knows what you're going to do with it in the future. And so we started that, and we went from one 52-day fast to another 52-day fast to another. And we tapped into something that in all these years we never really knew how valuable it was. And it was right in front of us all this time. And that's committing ourselves to daily, consistent, getting by the church and praying, if at all possible. And it unlocks the door for everything else. You want to live holy? Get by there and pray. You want to be consistent and faithful? Get by there and pray. It's the fuel for the engine that's taking you all the way. And I'm fully persuaded that at that night when I was shot in the head, that when God leaned in on his throne and said, hey, a couple of y'all go down there. Stand him up. Make sure he's all right. And when them angels were going, are you sure that's what you want to do? I mean, look at him. He, and he said, yeah, but you don't see what I see in the future. And it's affecting what I'm doing right now. And it's affecting what I'm doing for his life. That's why the pen is in my hand. And so... God brought us all the way, and my wife became pregnant with who I believe, and I'm a little biased, but is the most perfect, beautifulest little baby girl in the whole world. And so after all the goodness that God had shown us, we decided to name this little girl Mercy. And so now here I am in this great, wonderful church. God's restored things to me that I never even thought possible, even as far as ministry. He's given me a beautiful family. He's restored my soul. He's created in me a wonderful life of prayer, Fasting and consecration. And it stands true when it comes to Jacob MacMars that he's not done yet. Hallelujah, brother. Praise God. Well, I'm going to tell you, did you, I know you enjoyed that. Boy, it's victory, brother. Boy, I'm telling you, brother. I, woo, God is so powerful. Oh, so merciful. I thank you for it, God. Thank I praise you, you for it today, God. Hallelujah. You, oh, you've been so good, God. Oh, How you come so through blessed. every time, God. Oh, I thank, thank you, you for my church, God. Oh, I thank you for this prayer, Lord. Oh, I thank you, God. I thank you, Lord, that it's open 24-7, Lord. Oh, thank you, Oh, Jesus. I thank you for it, God. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, brother, you blessed us today. I thank you for that. 
Oh, man, thank you, Lord. Well, I just uh, want to thank you, brother, and uh, we want to invite our pastor in right now. He's going to sing a song, and it's called Worth. You thought I was worth saving, so you came and changed my life. You thought I was worth keeping, so you cleaned me up inside. You thought I was to die for, so you sacrificed your life so I could be free. I could be. Oh, no. 
sing it with me. Glory to the God who changed my life, and I will praise you forever, forever, and ever. Come on, sing it. Sacrifice your life so I could be. 